Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Song of Solomon, an amazing book. A book really like no other in the entire Bible and uh, about a love like no other. God wants us to love like no other, and he loves like no other. That's where the title comes from. It's a, it's a, remember, the Song of Solomon is a poetic love song. It's, a, um, it's so- Solomon's Song of Songs, we find out in the very first verse. It's, it's a love song between a man and a woman. And it also has amazing analogies to God's love for us. So it's a, it's a very unique book. And interestingly, I was just thinking this week, it, what we're about to talk about today especially falls right on Valentine's week. So, so fitting. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Um, today, we're going to look at, in the Song of Solomon, the wedding of this couple and the wedding night. Now, I just got the men's attention just now, so that's good. Um, And and let me just say again, as we start this today, um, uh, hold on one minute. I wanted to let you know that I understand that we have people from all walks of life in this room. You know, as we talk about weddings and sexual intimacy today from the Bible, sexual intimacy and marriage, we're not all going to have the same feelings Uh, Different thoughts are going to come into our minds uh, depending on our experiences and where we come from. For some, this area of our life is filled with ugliness and abuse, uh, things that uh, were not your fault and things that have just been uh, horrible for you in your life. For some, there are regrets over the past mistakes that you have made in some of these areas. And for some, you're working through temptations right this very moment and stuff like this. For some, this is a part of your life that seems like maybe a distant memory. And for some in here, they're single and it's something you look forward to at the right time. And for some, it's a healthy and satisfying part of your life. So I know we have a range of thoughts and a range of emotions and and a range of things that are attached to this, but this is the Word of God, and we're going to go through it. As a pastor, though, uh, which, you know, means shepherd, I care for each person, each one of you, in every situation that you might be in, and I understand very very, uh, closely that that not every story is the same, so please understand that. But I want to be faithful to teach God's Word, and if this is a painful topic, I hope you remember one thing as we go through that God is a redeemer. God is a redeemer. He can redeem anything that is brought to him. We come to him with all of our hurts, all of our pains, whatever we may have, especially in this area, and he redeems it. And he also gives grace to handle the pain of today, whatever we're dealing with in this moment. So remember that as we go through, okay? If you're in a relationship or you plan to be, what we're about to look at is a, it's a fantastic thing to aim for. It's the ideal, it's something that's beautiful that God wants relationships to have. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to join King Solomon and this country maiden at their wedding. Now we're actually going to start off with the processional, as we're going to see here in, in the Song of Solomon. But uh, the processional was a big deal back in the Ju- Jewish culture and, um, and still is in some places of the world and not a, as much around here. But I do remember that uh, on our wedding, my wife and I, there, we had somewhat of a processional after the ceremony on our way to the reception. So I have a little picture here to remind, to show you. That's me and my wife. And right after we got out of the church, we got onto this little cool little uh, Nissan here. And uh, we sat there and we rode all the way through St- the streets of Stockton to our reception. Um, but pr- it is a great picture. Processionals <laughs> are still popular in other countries. I have another picture here. This is a, an example f- uh, from India. Uh, so there are some new members in our church, uh, Abhishek and Anuya. I don't know if you've had the pleasure to meet them, but sweet Indian couple. And um, in India, when they had their wedding, they showed us a picture similar to this of her riding in one of these carriages in their processional. She said it was scorching hot. It was something like 120 degrees outside. She had this enormous dress on. She was, but it would take a couple hours behind this stinky horse getting all the way so she wasn't really impressed by this processional, but uh, she was a complete mess by the time she got to the church. But it is interesting. These processionals are a big deal. It's a big thing, and it's a sweet thing all around the world to celebrate this moment where a husband and wife are going to be married. And so that's what we're going to look at first here. We're going to see this processional right here in Song of Solomon, and we're going to call it a delightful celebration. Okay, let's look at this delightful celebration. Now, um, this is this is... Solomon, he went to go get his bride and to carry her from uh, where she lived out in the country to uh, the palace in Jerusalem. So Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and verse 6 is where we pick up. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the powders of the merchant? Now, interestingly, uh, scholars tell us that this, this word, this, here, who is this? That word this in Hebrew is in the feminine singular tense, which they say, they take it to mean that it's speaking of the maiden. So who is this woman? It's written as if somebody's walking down the road and they come across this huge royal caravan, as we're going to see here, and it's coming out of the country and into the city, and the person says, who is this that's coming out of the wilderness in this big cloud of incense smoke and pleasant aroma and beauty. Answer, it's the king's bride. And this is how a royal caravan would travel. There'd be dust flying up, so it'd almost look like they're in a big cloud of smoke. Plus, they would burn incense along the road as they went so that the aroma was sweet. So King Solomon, it appears here, is bringing his bride. He went to go get her with his big entourage, and he picks her up, and he, he's carrying her to Jerusalem. Now, this was typical. During a betrothal, a groom would, pre- would go back, prepare a home for their family, and then when it was the wedding day, he would go and get his bride and bring her back for the wedding. And that's kind of what was happening just in a larger scale because it's Solomon, uh, the richest man in the world. Verse 7, Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it, of the valiant of Israel. So it appears she's traveling in the king's royal, quote, bed or a couch. It's a place for her to sit or lie down. There's a first-class limousine here. 
Perhaps it's a, if some have called it a palanquin, uh, which is a relaxing way to travel being on, carried on the shoulders of men, something along these lines. And not only has he provided for her comfort, so Solomon gets her, makes sure she's all comfortable uh, in her little couch bed that she can travel this whole way, but he also cares about her security. Look what it says. He has 60 of his most valiant or his green berets to surround her carriage. Look what it says in verse 8. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. So apparently it was common back then for the king to travel with 30 armed bodyguards like David did. We've, we've seen another place in scripture. But Solomon here, notice, he provides 60 of his best fighters, most valiant fighters, to surround his bride. This is amazing. You know, I, I mean, I just, you imagine you know, 60 armed men around her, all the entourage of people and horses and everybody carrying things and, and going through. I mean, this is going to be a travel for several days, so it's in the nighttime and in the daytime. <laughs> I'm sorry for this, but you know, I just kept hearing the song Make Way for Prince Ali, you know, from the movie Aladdin. That's kind of what I just have in my head. I mean, you can almost hear that music being played as they're just walking down the road. But anyway, this is a great reminder of some key duties of a husband. Provide and protect. Provide and protect. If you're Solomon, this is what it looks like, this gigantic parade. But if you're just a young man these days who's trying to get a wife, <clears throat> then you need to spend some real money and go and buy a ring. Why? Because it should hurt financially. It needs to hurt financially. This is proof, if you can save up your money and buy a ring, then it is proof that you're totally invested in that woman and that you'll do whatever it takes to provide and protect her. And don't go into debt for that ring, okay? Save up and show that you can provide not only for her needs, but also for her comfort. Married ladies, listen, if your husband is a good provider, and a protector, then you need to let him know. You need to let him know that you appreciate it every once in a while. Build him up. Tell him just for those things alone. His, his key responsibilities in life, he's doing a good job. Now, we don't know a lot about these processionals, but it appears that there's another carriage on this caravan as well. So you have the one she's traveling in, maybe especially at night she sleeps in this one, and she's carried along at times. But then there's another one, it appears here, that pops up that Solomon maybe made himself, built it himself. Maybe this is for the bride when she wanted to ride with him and, and she with all her bridesmaids. And so I don't know. But look at verse 9 and 10 here. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom, or actually the back probably, thereof of gold, and the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. You know, it seems to me, and again, that Solomon built this chariot of carriage with love. He put his own uh, sweat into it. He wasn't just putting up money here. He was, he was putting sweat into this relationship. He loved this girl. He loved this girl. And there was nothing that he, he wouldn't do for her. Husbands, listen, put, up, put effort to treat that woman like the treasure she is. You know, Paul said the same thing in the New Testament. I'll just remind husbands here. We need to nurture and cherish our wives. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. Nurture and cherish, just as Christ does the church. Peter said, 
Men, husbands, treat your wife with honor. As a weaker vessel, but the word weaker really means delicate there. As a delicate vessel. We're supposed to be treating our wives like a fine piece of china. Now that's the, that's the way you speak to a wife. That's the way you're supposed to uh, dwell with a wife. Now, and I, I wouldn't completely pattern my life after all of Solomon's life, I'll tell you that. But there is certainly one thing we can learn from Solomon, and that's how to treat a woman. <laughs> now, Solomon brings her, he does all this for her, he carries her in the caravan all the way back to Jerusalem, and now they arrive. It's time for the wedding, verse 11. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon, with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals, and in the day of the gladness of his heart. So the caravan has now made it to Jerusalem, and now someone b blurts out, Behold, King Solomon with his crown. Now the crown here, notice, is not his kingly crown. It's his crown of his espousals, meaning the customary wedding crown. And, and so it, this tells us that this is his wedding day. Even today, rabbis will tell Jewish couples that on your wedding day, you're considered royalty, and they'll put little crowns sometimes on the, on the groom and the bride. And notice, as it says there at the end of this uh, verse, this day is the day of the gladness of his heart. The day of the gladness of his heart. It's a joy-filled celebration. I mean, this is the day that Solomon has waited for. He finally gets his bride to be his own. <clears throat> now, I want to point out something here. Old Testament professor Richard Hess has a great insight here that I want to share with you. Here's what he says. The entire section has been building to this climax, the announcement of a wedding. This is what brings joy, the gladness of the heart, to the king, rather than wealth or power or anything else. So significant is this happiness that the term simcha, the word gladness in Hebrew, occurs only here in the whole of the Song of Solomon, despite its frequency elsewhere in the Bible, some 95 appearances, and the joyous tone of the whole song here. The Song of Solomon does not portray sex as the great and final goal in order to experience true joy, nor does it suggest that mutual admiration of the lovers, their physical bodies, and sensuality is the source of joy. Rather, the song directly associates the joy of the heart with the final commitment of marriage. It is only within this commitment that all the joys of the male and female lovers come together. I love that. I love that. The greatest joys that we're going to have as husbands and wives uh, really flow out of this lifelong commitment that you make at the beginning. That has to be there. That's the foundation for all the other joys that we're going to experience in life. We make this commitment to one another and now there's this beauty and joy that comes. Again, let me remind all of us that God is fully behind marriage. He says in the book of Hebrews, as we mentioned before, the, he the, uh, the marriage bed is undefiled. <clears throat> marriage is his design. So we have every reason to celebrate it. All this celebration that's going on is a holy thing and it's a wonderful thing. And we ought to keep celebrating marriages and weddings, but we have to keep it sacred. And that's what I'm afraid in our culture. We've kept these massive and expensive wedding celebrations, but so often we've lost the sacredness of what those mean. 
For many today, the, the vows don't mean much at all. Let's rush through the ceremony, rush through the vows, and then party uh, at the reception. But we've lost the sacredness. And especially, we've lost the respect for the wedding night. You know, in Solomon's day, the couple would have their wedding. They would go on this processional, come there, have a big celebration, uh, have their uh, first feast together at night. But then while everyone was feasting, the husband and wife, the groom and the bride, would go off into their own chamber and consummate the marriage. And then the next morning, everybody would come back, and for the next several days, there would just continue to be the marriage feast and celebrations of all that, it, that had taken place. Today, the wedding night has lost its holiness, has lost its sacredness. You know, most brides and grooms today, we talked about this last week, have already been living together. And so all of this that we're talking about is kind of just a mere formality. What, ha what has happened is in our culture, we've separated sex from marriage. And in fact, this stems from one of the biggest lies that is perpetuated in this world, and that is the idea that sex is only physical. It's only physical. It's not a big deal because it's only physical. Let people do what they want to do. Lay off of them. Let them have what they want to have. It's only physical. But I like how Pastor J.D. Greer challenged that notion. He said this, listen. He said, if sex is just physical, then why is it that rape is reported so much less than physical abuse? And, and why, if, if, if sex is just physical, then why is adultery so emotionally devastating to a marriage relationship? And why is it then, if, if sex is only physical, then why is it that when someone sits in my office and says, Pastor, I've never told anyone this before, that 99% of the time it's something sexual? No, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that when you lie with a harlot, you become one with her. He also talks about how fornication has a different effect on us than other sins do in that same book. Now I want to point out something else. Proverbs chapter 30 paints the act of sex in a very mysterious and as a, very, as a wonderful miracle of God. Look at Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 18. There be three things that, which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. What he's saying is there's just something beyond explanation. I don't quite understand it. There's something mysterious that happens when we do this with a person. But notice that there were people back then same, saying the same things. We, everybody today thinks they're so... Uh, so you know, progressive, uh, you know, sex is just physical. We're so progressive today, but they were saying the same thing back then. Look at the very next verse now in verse 20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman, and it could be man also here. She eateth, wipeth her mouth, and saith, I have done no wickedness. The adulterer, see, says, it's no big deal what I just did. I've done nothing wrong. It's just like eating. It's just physical. This is an outright lie. There is something very mysterious and unique and sacred about this act. And it reminds us, as we look at that and think about that, as Christians, we can't hand over the discussions about sex and intimacy uh, to the world. We can't hand them this whole topic and this whole subject. 
because we're too embarrassed to talk about it. You know, Hollywood and the psychologists already think that they have invented sex. And they think they're the authority on the subject. But I'm sorry, what we're about to read in this next chapter in God's word from 3,000 years ago is more romantic and more satisfying for people long term than, than all the garbage that we see today, a lot of the garbage we see. What we're about to see is guiltless eroticism. It's shameless sensuality. It's lifelong satisfaction. You know, God invented this thing. Let's be very clear. God invented this thing and he is not ashamed of it. And in the right context, it's the most beautiful thing in the world for a couple. But of course, <clears throat> as having said all that, I must admit, there's a certain, obviously, there's a certain level of privacy around this topic because of its sacredness. And we want to keep it that way. But we have to be real careful as Christians <clears throat> about what some have called Greek thinking. And that is that all spiritual things are good and all material things or physical things are evil. And we separate. In our, in our attempt sometimes to be holy, we might make sex look evil. We can't do that. Uh, the Hebrews had a Hebrew thinking and it, their thinking was different. He, in Hebrew thinking, the, the physical world and, uh, and the spiritual world are all one. God, it's, they're all designed by God. God. God did everything. God created all of this and therefore it's good. So sex created by God is good because he created it for mankind. So if we'll just talk about it as the Bible talks about it, then we'll be in the right place. Uh, we'll be talking about it in the right way. And it is perfect and beautiful on a, in this uh, situation as a fire in the fireplace, not out in the living room, as a fire in the fire, in the right context, in marriage, it's a beautiful thing. So now let's see God, a God-designed wedding night here. By putting this in the Bible, God is celebrating the act of two becoming one. So this is a designed consummation we're about to see. And by the way, it's been... Up till now, in the book of Song of Solomon, almost exclusively, it's been almost all the girl talking. But now she's quiet, and he's going to take over, and he's going to do all, all the talking. I guess we know who's excited now in this passage. What's helpful to know is that what he's going to do now is he's going to go move down her body and describe his feelings in poetic and romantic language as he describes her body. There's nothing raunchy or dirty about this. It is sweet. It is poetic and it elevates real, holy intimacy. Song of Solomon, chapter four, verse one. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. The word fair, again, means beautiful. So he says, you are fair, my love, you are fair. Your eyes are like a beautiful dove's eyes. Your hair is dark or black like a flock of goats that appear over the hills. If your wife is blonde, guys, you'll have to come up with your own metaphor here. You can't use his. But, he, <laughs> but he, what might be happening here on their wedding night in, in their chamber, he might be letting down her hair. And as her hair falls, he's touching her face and admiring her beauty in every part of her face. Again, look at the language he's using. He says she is beautiful two times here for emphasis. If he, if he repeats it, it's because he's emphasizing. 
And the flock of goats, the goats, you know, that uh, some have said it's like those uh, the dark black goats that would come over the hills and you kind of see them rolling over the mountain. That may be her hair falling down. And he just looks at her with such uh, love. And this is a husband's job. He slowly, as he speaks, building security into her. You are beautiful. You're beautiful to me. Verse two, thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are, that are even shorn, which came up from the washing whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. <laughs> Your teeth are even. <laughs> they're washed, and they're all there, <laughs> he says. <clears throat> Not always a guarantee back then, <laughs> or now for that matter, honestly, but, but we all appreciate good hygiene, amen? All right, verse three. Thy lips <clears throat> are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate with, within thy locks. You know, might be taking off her veil and looking at her hair and, and her cheeks and this, what the temples actually here are, are actually referring to the cheeks. She has cute little round cheeks like pomegranates. <laughs> Maybe she's blushing at this moment. <clears throat> Verse four, thy neck is like the tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Well, that really ruined the mood. Thanks a lot, Solomon. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, what he's saying is, you know, necks back then were a sign of dignity and confidence. She didn't have a slouching neck, which speaks of bashfulness, and, or a stiff neck, which speaks of stubbornness. Uh, she was a woman of dignity. She held her neck up. She was a woman of dignity and grace. Verse 5, thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Young rose or fawns or little young deer, they are gentle, innocent creatures. If they're out feeding, <laughs> the only way to approach a young deer is slowly and with respect, or they're gonna go pew. And in all of this, what we're seeing is that Solomon is moving slow. He's being very gentle with this woman. He's describing how he feels. Slow, gentle. Put that in your notes, guys, slow, gentle. God is giving great advice for your wedding night, okay? Verse six, until the day break and, and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, we already talked a little bit last week about the, what the mountains refer to here. He's still speaking of his wife's breasts, he, and he's apparently spending an extra verse on this area of her body, but... Ultimately, this verse seems to be him really just expressing his desire to be with her, to be with her, close to her, all night. And she expressed the same thing, remember, earlier. But now he's responding in the same way. Now, again, what's really sweet about this is that this is a special moment for two people who have done things the right way. They have waited patiently for this right time, and there is no guilt in any of this. God is so pleased, and God is right there saying, you go for it. Solomon continues to talk about her beauty, verse 7. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Now look at that statement. He says, I don't see one thing wrong with you. You're all fair. Isn't it, isn't it so amazing how God has wired us? When we are in love, we really do have rose-colored glasses. It's true. 
Uh, He says, you are all beautiful. There is no spot in thee. You are spotless. You are without blemish. Now, she knows that this is not true, objectively. Okay, is there anyone who absolutely has no spot or blemish on them? No, of course not. But in the eyes of a person in love, that is really how he feels. And she loves to hear him say that. Now this tells me something. <clears throat> this tells me that husbands and wives need to do something. This is, this is a very simple principle that I had read a while back that is so profound and so important, I think, to keep in mind for all of us that have been married for years. And that is, husbands and wives need to do whatever it takes, not to, just to uh, stay married, but to stay in love. Stay in love. Because when you're in love, you overlook faults. You don't leave the person that you are in love with. You don't want to. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. You know, some of the best marriage work that we can do right now is just to work hard at staying in love. Stay in love. Go on dates. Go on getaways. Get romance going in the kitchen. (laughs) Be playful. Always speak in uplifting ways. Be romantic throughout the day. Buy things for one another. Find ways to serve each other. Stay in love. Stay in love. You don't want to leave someone that you're in love with. You know, by, the way, by way of spiritual application here, this is one of the main spiritual things I want to bring out for today. When it talks about you know, this whole thing of w- us being married to Christ. He is the groom, we are the bride. You know, This verse here about uh, having no spot may very well be the verse that Paul was referring to in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says that Christ is going to present his bride without spot or wrinkle, without spot or wrinkle. When Christ saves us, he takes away all the unrighteousness, all of it, and he puts his righteousness in there. We are spotless, and we can count on that fact, as he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it or will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what our groom has promised. I'm going to keep you saved. I'm going to keep you all the way to the end. Jesus, when he speaks to us, uh, he speaks to us with such, he gives us such security in our love with him. And that's what Solomon was doing here as well. So newlywed Solomon continues. Verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana from the top of Shinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Uh, Craig Glickman, a scholar, said he had an interesting thought here. He said, in asking her to come from such fearful places, he's really asking her to bring her thoughts completely to him and to leave her fears behind and perhaps to leave the lingering thoughts of home behind as well. He wished her to leave her fear and anxiety about the new life of marriage and Simply come to him. So he calls her from her fears to his arms. You know, you may have heard of the book, a popular marriage book, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. Um, the idea there in that book is that it's easier for men to compartmentalize all the areas of their life. 
for the, for the wife, everything is connected in the brain. You know, uh, Kids are connected to the house, and the house is connected to their mother, and their mother is connected to making dinner, and dinner is connected to the money, and money is connected to the husband, and everything's just kind of going. Throughout the day, everything's just firing on all cylinders. But for the man, he has a box <laughs> for all of those things, and he can leave things in the box and come out of that box and go to a different box and focus on each box individually. Solomon is kind of telling her to do that. He's saying, listen, turn off your brain. (laughs) Turn off all the fears. Come away from all the mountains and all that stuff and all the distractions and, and come and just focus. Be here with me right now. Be here with me. And guys, that's a good practical thought. Be patient. It's sometimes difficult for your wife to disconnect from life and focus on how wonderful and sexy that you are. (laughs) But it doesn't come easy for her, okay? But having said that, ladies, do your best to turn your brain off and sometimes really focus, really focus on your husband. Initiate romance. It will only help everything else in your life. And the the men are saying amen. Verse 9, Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. Wow, this guy is really in love, okay? When he looks at, he says, just, I just look at one of your eyes or one jewel of the chain on your neck. I'm ravished in my heart. We want to say, okay, okay, buddy, <laughs> calm down. Calm down here. But you know what? That's not what God is saying. Do you notice that? He's letting this stuff go. It's, uh, God is just letting this go. It's not unholy to be ravished in your heart for the right person at the right time. It's not an unholy thing. My sister, he says. Now that is an affectionate term back then for a wife. Four times Solomon calls the Shulamite woman my sister, my bride, in the, in the Song of Solomon. In the ancient Near East, sister, the term sister was a term for one's life in love, in love poetry. It was used to emphasize the closeness of their relationship. Which is a great reminder, again, guys, and husbands and wives here, that we ought to work at being close friends as well as romantic partners. Uh, If you have a great friendship, that's going to help you go the distance. All the loves are in play here. The eros, all those Greek (laughs) words for love. Uh, Eros, I should say. And phileo and agape. All loves ought to be at play in in a marriage. Verses 10 and 11. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine. And the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. And the smell of thy garment is like the smell of Lebanon. All the senses are at work here. It is truly uh, sensual. It's sensual. It is all the senses at play. You Hear the sound of intimate words, the reference to wine, honey, and milk under her tongue might be because he's kissing her. The smell of ointments and her garments and the sights and all of this. God has created this act as something that touches all of our senses. And by the way, one commentator pointed out that garments, the word garments in this is not a common word for clothing here. The salma is, is the outer garment which served as both a cloak for the day and a cover while sleeping. But this latter usage gave rise to the use, he said, of the word of a bed covering. So in context here, it's some sort of sleepwear. It's negligee is probably implied. So just giving scripture here, folks, okay? 
I'm, I'm, I'm the guy's favorite pastor this morning. All the guys are like, yeah, this is a good pastor right here. <laughs> Chapter, <laughs> verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Now this is interesting language. Solomon speaks and equates his bride's sexuality to a garden enclosed, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Now, the garden metaphor, now he's going to start using a little bit more, and it's going to keep popping up. But what does this mean, a garden enclosed? Now, all of these analogies in this verse are poetic about her virginity. It's descriptions that she is a virgin. She has worked hard to protect and keep herself for him. She's been shut to everyone, including him, until the time was right. Now please understand this, this is, this is what really makes this extra pure and extra special. Virginity is a precious gift that you give to one person. And it's meant to be given after you've made a vow of lifelong marriage. This way, then you come into a marriage with no baggage, uh, no haunting memories, no diseases, no shame. It's a great way to start. It's the best way to start. Amen. And in this chapter, we see that really what we're looking at here is that exclusive sex in a marriage is related to sexual fulfillment in life. It's the best way to do this. Now, having said that, I am aware again that many of you might have partaken in premarital sex or even extramarital sex, either before you were a Christian or after. I understand that. And some, because of that, might feel like they could never again enjoy this gift of God, like it was meant to be enjoyed. Or there's some heavy guilt surrounding this. So let me just give you one verse that you need to know and internalize deeply. This is for all of us, but especially if that's how you're feeling this morning. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. Remember this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you notice that last phrase? All, all unrighteousness. God wipes the slate clean. And let me speak to this metaphor of a garden. He, he uses this metaphor that we're gonna continue to see. A garden is something that requires nurture and protection from invaders but if a garden gets trampled or destroyed, a master gardener could get the garden back to a healthy state. If you've allowed your garden to be trampled or destroyed, remember that God is a master gardener. And he can come again and make a vibrant, healthy, guilt-free, life-giving garden all over again. And he can do that, and he does do that. But for our couple here in the Song of Solomon, he has been allowed into the garden and now he's going to describe his satisfaction in poetic terms. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphire with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. In other words, what I just experienced with you is like the greatest garden I've ever been in. Everything was amazing. The word orchard there in, in the Hebrew word is, is the Hebrew word pardis, which is where we get the word paradise. He's saying being with you, darling, is like paradise. 
And this is how God intended this to be, a holy feeling, a good thing, a paradise, a little bit of paradise on earth. Now after all of this, the new bride speaks up. She's feeling secure and now, and ready to be intimate with her husband as well. And so she says, verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, O thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. You know, it's like opening the gate to a garden and allowing the wind to blow in, she says. She invites her husband into her garden. It's a sexual reference. And by the way, look at the word awake. Remember, twice now she has told her friends earlier, do not awaken my love until it pleases. Do not awaken my love until it pleases. Now she says, awake. Now is the right time. This is the right person. God has blessed this, so now it's time to awake. And notice she says, my, first she says my garden in the verse, and then she ch- it changes to his garden. This is the essence of marriage right here. We give ourselves wholly to the other person. What God said in the beginning and what Jesus reiterated when he was here on earth, the two become one. And that's not only referring to the sexual act, but in every area we need to be completely open and honest and, and vulnerable with our spouse in every area of life. And one more verse with a surprise ending here as we, as we end, and this is a divine proclamation now. Song of Solomon chapter five and verse one. Solomon begins, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And then someone else speaks. Eat, O oh friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O oh, oh, beloved. Solomon first speaks. He expresses his complete satisfaction with his wife and the time that they've now spent together on their wedding night. It's been sweet and fulfilling like myrrh, spices, honeycomb, honey, wine and milk. All good, no guilt. Something casual sex can never provide to anybody. And then someone, someone speaks. And in the Hebrew, it, it's not Solomon. It's not the Shulamite woman. It breaks out of nowhere and nobody knows who for sure is speaking here. But all the best scholars on this are convinced that it's God now breaking in. I mean, who else would have been there on their wedding night with them? Here's what he says. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. This is a divine proclamation. Sex and intimacy in marriage is a gift to mankind. You are allowed to drink abundantly within marriage because God is kind. But as with any of God's gifts, mankind can turn it into an idol. And, and it can become a soul-destroying vice in a person's life. And that's what's happened to so many. Do not let the devil lie to you and say that the world's version of this whole sexual intimacy thing is better than what God has planned. I hope you just saw what we read there. This is better. This is satisfaction for life. The counterfeit is never better than the real thing. Everybody listen, as we close here, go God's way. He's good to all of us, but I also remember this, he's a giver. That's what I tell you, he's a giver, but he's also a forgiver. He's a giver, but he's a forgiver. Lord, thank you that... We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.